Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. To bring each episode to life, we offer to our listeners, that would be you, thanks for listening, a downloadable asset to help you take action on the ideas percolating after each episode. For this episode, we are offering as a gift, Connecting to Your Whole Self, an excerpt from Michael Ventura's book, Applied Empathy. Head to culturefirstpodcast.com slash empathy to download your copy. All right, let's get started. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Welcome back to the Culture First podcast. In our last episode, we focused on the idea of soft skills, and we spent time trying to define just what exactly soft skills are. There was some debate about what we should call them, but what we all agreed upon is that they're just not simply soft and fluffy and these things that make you feel warm inside. Soft skills are people skills. They're life skills. They're the skills that help us improve our relational intelligence. I think we can all agree that there's something that you should be definitely developing, no matter what you want to call them. If you're curious about how some of our listeners actually felt about this topic, search the hashtag culturefirstpodcast on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I really enjoyed partaking in some of those conversations, and I encourage you to keep them going. So the last episode was all about defining soft skills. And if you're brand new to this show, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first. But in this episode and the next one, we're going to start to fine-tune some of these life skills to help us really improve as employees, as leaders, so that we can create more culture-first organisations around the world. One of these skills gets talked about a lot at work, and the other, not so much. And to make things even more complicated, I think that if we were to ask 10 people to define these two words, we'd get a lot of crossover between the two. But they're both really important. I'm talking about empathy and compassion. We're going to save compassion and compassion fatigue for the next episode. So let's dive right into empathy and specifically applied empathy. Don't worry, we'll unpack what applied empathy means by the end of this episode. My first guest to talk about empathy is Michael Ventura, CEO and founder of Subrosa and author of the book Applied Empathy. Subrosa is a strategy and design firm that has worked with some of the world's largest and most interesting brands. From Johnson & Johnson to Pantone, Adobe, the TED Conference, Delta Airlines, and The Daily Show. I had a fascinating conversation with Michael, and I can't wait to share it with you. Of course, we talked about the role of empathy in creating a culture-first organization, but we also talked about whether empathy is something that people are just born with, or can it be trained We also talked about ways that we can actually teach empathy. One thing that might be surprising is that we actually talked about weaponized empathy in the office. Something that I would hope to be more common in a culture last organization than a culture first one. So there's a lot to cover here and it's time to jump right in. So Michael, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk a lot about emotions today. So I thought I'd just maybe start with 
What emotion are you feeling the most right now? At home, I would say, because I have been on the road for the past couple of weeks and today is only my second day back in the office. And it feels really nice to see the faces that are on the other side of emails for the past couple of weeks and to sit in meetings where we're not talking through phones, but we're actually looking at each other again. And it just feels good to kind of be back in the saddle. So what I would like to get out of this conversation is for our listeners to better understand how to define empathy. Uh, be empowered to bring it into their work, to collaborate and solve problems with it in a more fluid and elegant way. So what is your definition of empathy? And I know that you sort of have come up with your own version of this called applied empathy, but if you could break down maybe the traditional types of empathy and then how you think about it. Sure. So empathy unto itself as a word is really about perspective taking, right? Whereas sympathy is you've felt this before and so you will mirror it with someone else, right? Or you'll tell them that this is how, you know, you can sympathize because you've been through this too, right? That's putting you into the conversation. Empathy is really just about the act of perspective taking. But there are three main types of empathy uh, from a psychological standpoint. There's affective empathy. Affective empathy is sort of like golden rule empathy. It is almost more like sympathy, which is that I perceive you to feel a certain way. Let's say sad. I've been sad before. When I'm sad, I want people to treat me this way, so I treat you that way. And the the folly in that as a practice for business and leadership is that it puts my bias into it. What if when you're sad, you want to be left alone? When I'm sad, I want to be consoled, right? I will have therefore done something that wasn't terribly empathic to you because I put myself into the equation. The second is somatic empathy. This is physically feeling the emotions of someone else. Uh, you see this with spouses who have sympathy pains when their spouse is pregnant, or you see this in nurses who have empathy fatigue for their patients because they're just feeling what they're going through so much. Super hard to train, hard to plug into business context. Uh, the third type of empathy is cognitive empathy, and that is the the act of perspective taking, of really putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And if if affective is golden rule empathy, I like to think of cognitive as platinum rule empathy. Do unto others as they would have you do unto them, right? And and that act is really the foundation from which we built the idea of applied empathy. Let's take a quick pause here. When I was sitting down with Michael and he was discussing the three different types of empathy. What you can't see on my face that's actually happening is like the mind-blown emoji kind of thing happening because I was like, wow, I'm actually seeing empathy in a brand new light. Empathy is all about perspective taking. Do onto others as they would have you do onto them. This is really different from just being compassionate towards their situation, which was actually my next question for Michael. I think the big difference for me between empathy and compassion, there's a lot of similarity. That Venn diagram has a good chunk of overlap, right? They both require perspective taking to gain deeper understanding of another person, right? But there is, as we said earlier, ways that empathy can be used positively or negatively vis-a-vis its application. Compassion is never negative. Compassion is always on the positive and, and, and compassion is often always attached to uh, some form of mirroring. Because I see this, I'm going to, I've seen it in me too. And I can kind of, I can reflect that back to you with with more sympathy or compassion because I I see what you're going through, right? Um, And the line between sympathy and compassion is even more blurred in many ways too. But empathy is not inherently as a practice cognitive empathy always good and so what we need to 
remember when practicing empathy is the acquisition of information is only the first step. It is then in the application of it that we dis- we determine how best to put that information into practice. I was reading a study uh, from Kellogg Northwestern, and they described empathy as a uh, critical but surprisingly complex thing. Mm-hmm. What is it about empathy that makes it so complex? It is elusive for a lot of people because it has gotten this rap in the zeitgeist that it is a gift and that some people have it and other people don't. And I believe, particularly with cognitive empathy, that it's a skill you train and it's a skill you practice. And so it is something that I think we can all do and do better the more we work with it, but it does require commitment. It requires dedication. It requires some training. But it can play a really critical role in not just interpersonal relationships or leadership or building a better culture inside an organization, but also uh, how to connect with others outside of your organization, be that consumers or the media or what have you, uh, and often overlooked, how to connect more meaningfully with yourself and understand facets of yourself that maybe have been in the blind spot. So here at CultureAmp, we obviously talk a lot about the importance of taking action on your company culture. Mm-hmm. So not just looking at the feedback or listening, but actually taking action on the initiatives that are going to improve uh, the people and culture and the experience that people ultimately have at work. Right. But when it comes to empathy, does it have any power on its own or is it always about having to take action yeah, so it's it's a great question because it's exactly why we called our approach applied empathy. Empathy unto itself is inherently passive, right? I could spend tons of time getting to know you, really understanding you, understanding what makes you tick, and then keep hanging out the same way we've always done and keep working together the way we've always done and not allow any of that to inform the way we interact with each other. It's only in the application of empathy that the work starts to happen and that, and that the effects can start to be uh, proven out. The other thing to note on this, though, is that particularly with cognitive empathy, you can apply that in a myriad of ways, not all of which are good. Um, great sociopaths are great cognitive empaths because if I don't understand you, how could I manipulate you, right? It's, it's, it's in that ability to cognitively put myself in your shoes that I can then say, okay, now here's what I need to do to get my way or to kind of manipulate the situation, right? We don't want to breed more sociopaths. And so one of the big important things with the work we do is also developing a code of ethics around how we will use the information we gather. Because if you don't know I'm gathering this information and or if you don't know how I'm using that information I've gathered, that's unethical. And so it's it's a critical component of practicing empathy that we are transparent about the acquisition of the information and also its usage. I think that's so important. So many um, decisions and uh, projects and team structures like are just happening without real symbolism, without real code of ethics, or without real language around like actually how do we want to like the how of the work really doesn't get talked as much as opposed to like what we're doing and like has it been done exactly. And I think it's it's interesting when you start to see the missteps that the how can sometimes take when it's not well thought out or when people are moving too fast and and or the pressure that is put on them for getting to a certain ROI or a certain sales number or whatever it is forces people's hands to make poor choices with how they use information or relationships that they've cultivated. My next guest is Stacy Nordwall. Stacy has an MA with honors in counseling psychology from St. Mary's College of California 
and a BA in Psychology and Communication from Stanford University. I'm a big fan of Stacey, but I'm a little bit biased because I've had the joy of working with Stacey at CultureAmp where she serves as the People Program Lead for Leadership and Learning. I reached out specifically to Stacey because I wanted to get some real boots on the ground perspective on how to implement empathy into the workplace. What are some of the ways that you can build a more empathetic onboarding process? What I love to do when I'm starting to build a new people process is to put my design thinking hat on. So I like to develop the process really with a mind toward what is someone thinking and feeling as they're going through this. And for onboarding, what people are initially feeling is, you know, excitement, fear, uncertainty, overwhelm, and you want to build in the time and space that allows those emotions to happen. And you also want to think about that people come in really wanting to know some very practical things, uh, uh, things that are about belonging and what the norms are. So building in something where you address that kind of stuff as well, where it's like, where do people get coffee? Do people eat lunch at their desks or they do they go into the lunchroom? And making sure that you're building in all of those kinds of things as well. It's kind of like being empathetic for what they don't know and assuming that they are coming with no knowledge and then making any, anything that could be an assumption unknown to help them through that uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. You want to set people up so that they don't have to wonder what the norms are or what's happening. You want to remember what it's like to walk into a totally new situation and have to try to figure things out and then actually just make it so that people don't have to figure out quite as much. I think about the process of developing our well-being guide internally and the team, as we started working on it, one of the things we did was we kind of jumped to solutions and I had us all step back and ask, well, what is it that you actually want people to feel when they come to work every day? And so we had a discussion about that and it was about wanting people to feel safe and feel that they belonged and and things that were really involved in, in that kind of emotion. And then the next question I asked was, well, where are the gaps? Where do you see the gaps? And let's start working there. So instead of kind of just jumping to a solution without going through this process of what do we want people to feel and where do we think that might not be happening and let's start from there, uh, that we started going through that process instead. And I think we came up with something that was very different than what we might have if we hadn't stepped back to, to think about that experience that people were having and that we wanted them to have. Ellen Sweeney is the Senior Director of People Operations at MeUndies. MeUndies is around 180 people. That's including our headquarters, our fulfillment center, and our retail stores. In our headquarters, we are about 75 people. Now, I've spoken at events at the MeUndies office in Los Angeles, and they're also long-time users of the CultureAmp platform. Ellen and I sat down to speak about how MeUndies thinks about their employee experience, and we also find out whether you can screen new hires for high levels of empathy. 
even when I just say the word empathy, like what are some of the first things that come up for you? For me, when I hear empathy, I think about creating a safe space, creating a vulnerable environment where people feel comfortable and supported and that somebody is going to understand what it is that they're going through and help them navigate that in the workplace. What makes me the most excited is our mission beyond just underwear is to empower self-expression. We're really a values-driven company and we've cultivated a highly engaged and vocal and inclusive community by celebrating people as they are. And it really comes down to our belief that if you're comfortable in what you wear and in who you are, then you're unstoppable. And that's really what we try to practice every day in, in our company. MeUndies just didn't start selling underwear and then find themselves with this amazing culture. No, this is something that they had to create through vision, values, and intention. And of course, a lot of that starts at the top with their CEO, Jonathan Shokrian. He said that conscious growth and profitability puts you in control of your destiny, helps you stay true to your founding purpose and creating a better company culture. So why has this strategy been so important and so successful to the actual uh, growth and story of MeUndies. Yeah, I think, you know, when he says that, he really means that a lot of startups have this mindset of creating hockey stick growth and they want to be the unicorn. So they're taking a lot of cash up front, but then they're stuck with creating return on it. And all of a sudden your decisions become money and investor focused instead of customer focused. So it's been really important for us to stay lean with steady growth to allow us to keep our focus on the purpose, which is our customers and obviously most important to me, our employees. And because of that, we've been able to create an environment where our employees are a top priority and that's allowed us to cultivate a really beautiful culture. One of the most um, you know, important and also potentially stressful parts of, of an employee experience, depending on your relationship and some of the previous ex- you know, experiences you've had, is with your performance development or performance management process. You know, in some organizations, this is really well thought out and it, it is um, quite empathetic towards the employee. And, and then in other times, you know, like I know in places I've worked, it might just be an afterthought conversation and it, it can be quite a stressful actual process for someone to go through. So, you know, from your perspective, what role does empathy play in your performance development process? Empathy in, in performance development, I think, is incredibly important because Talking about your career growth or compensation or how you're feeling at a company and where you're going is really a terrifying thing. And so our what we have tried to do is make it really comfortable and make sure that everybody understands how to have those conversations so that it can always feel like a two-way communication versus a, okay, I'm going to, as your manager, sit down and give you feedback and you're going to listen and then you're going to leave the room right? We try to make it a really open dialogue. So there is weekly one-on-ones between managers and their direct reports where sure they're going through things in the business and, and what they're working on, but that's also an opportunity for feedback on a regular basis. And we have a very transparent process in our annual compensation reviews where people know exactly what to expect and when those things are coming up to try and remove the fear around those things. But also, especially as a people team, Our job is to make sure that our team members feel empowered to have those conversations with their managers. So there's a lot of coaching and empathy that happens to prepare them to have those, right? There's a lot of people that will come to me and say, hey, 
I want to understand how I ask my manager for a promotion. What do I do to navigate that conversation? And it's then on me to, to empathize with how scary that could be to bring up and coach them through how to broach that topic comfortably. All right, let's take a quick pause here. I'm going to do a quick plug. I just can't help myself. MeUndies uses the CultureAmp performance product to build a process that minimizes bias and maximizes empathy. So if you're listening to Ellen and saying, I want the same for my performance management process, make sure you head over to the CultureAmp website to learn more about our performance product. All right, now that I've got that out of the way, let's get back to my conversation with Ellen. Do you have specific examples of questions that you think an empathetic leader should be asking during a one-on-one? One-on-ones are really important time to connect with your direct report. I think that keeping those as a regularly occurring touch base that everybody knows what to expect and when it's going to happen is of critical importance to show that you value your direct reports time and you value spending a, a hour with them every week to just talk one-on-one. And so we always encourage our managers to kick those off conversationally, right? Check in on how they're doing and ask, ask more prompting questions. Often they start with, hey, how's everything going? Your direct report says good, and then you move right into business as usual. But it's important to dig in a little bit to make sure that they actually are good, right? So it might be asking a more pointed question of, hey, you presented yesterday to a group of 40 people. How did that make you feel? Or I noticed that you had a difficult back and forth with somebody on another team. Do you want to talk about it? And asking those questions to create this safe space where they feel comfortable expanding beyond just saying, oh, yeah, everything's cool. Let's just talk about work, right? In your perspective, how do you try to create a more empathetic onboard experience at MeUndies and a more empathetic uh, exit experience at MeUndies? For our onboarding experience, I think we really try to practice empathy with building a safe place. Starting a new job is terrifying. You're new. You don't know anybody. It could be your first job in a very long time or first new job in a very long time. And so we try to make people feel very comfortable uh, in everybody's first week. They have an end of first week check-in with people ops and with their manager as their time goes on, we, of course, as I mentioned, have the 30, 60, 90 day check-ins as well to make sure that things are continuing to feel safe. Um, but one of my favorite things that we do when somebody joins is provide them a welcome buddy. We pair them with somebody that they potentially will be working with cross-functionally or somebody we feel like they might really connect with. And that person is set up as a person that they can ask anything they want to. I think when people join, they feel like they're going to have a lot of dumb questions like, where do I park? What do people do for lunch? And We want people to feel comfortable asking anything and everything to somebody that maybe isn't people ops or isn't their manager, just a built-in person that can kind of support them as they learn how MeUndies works. And in terms of the offboarding piece, I think that might be where empathy is the most important, whether it's on somebody's own terms or on the company's terms, treating people as humans and really humanizing that process is always been really important to me undies when there is somebody moving on from me undies it's of utmost importance that we make sure that they feel like they're leaving on the best of terms no matter what it is and we're here to support them whether it be references or helping them find what's next it's a really big priority to us that even if me undies wasn't the right long-term fit for any reason we want to and are invested in making sure that they find the right long-term fit if it's not here 
And I also think that that even continues into after people have moved on from MeUndies, we really strive as a company to make sure that we're representing those people well here, right? We don't want to disparage the people who have worked here and we don't want to treat them as anything less than human. It just sometimes isn't the right long-term fit and that's totally fine and perfectly natural, especially in a fast-growing company. If someone's listening to this and they're like, you know what, this sounds like the sort of company that I want to apply for. I'm willing to move to Los Angeles or I'm already in Los Angeles and I want to apply for a job at MeUndies. Is empathy an important skill that you look to hire for? And if it is, how do you actually try to assess that in a candidate? Empathy is one of the most important things that, that we're looking for when we're hiring for people to join this team. As I mentioned before, we have six core values that we really believe in, and we try to vet against all of those during the interview process. I don't like to call it culture fit because I don't think that that's an accurate term for what we're looking for. We're not looking for people to fit into exactly how we are, but we're really looking for people that are going to add in a great way to the organization and building relationships and feeling comfortable expressing themselves and accepting others for expressing themselves and being resilient, keeping cool, being humble, all of these things. And so we like to vet those in questions very specific to experiences that can showcase how they are in relationships and building connections with their managers or direct reports or cross-functionally and really just understanding how they're answering questions, right? If you're talking through something wonderful that they rolled out at their current company and all you hear is, I did this, I did that, I did this, and they're not saying, I empowered my team to do this or I worked cross-functionally to achieve this. Those are the kinds of things we're really looking for. I'll share one more story because it just happened last week and it truly brought tears to my eyes. This person had reached out to our support team and needed to cancel her membership for her husband who had unfortunately passed away. And instead of the customer experience agent just replying and saying, okay, cool, I've canceled your membership, she sent a wonderful heartfelt message and spent the time to look up this woman's late husband and understand what he was involved in and what he was a part of. And we made a donation to an organization that he was a, a big part of. And and the impact that had for this woman who had to do such a daunting task of reaching out to a company to cancel a membership of her late husband was just such a moving moment for me that we're doing so much more than underwear and empathy for other humans is the most important thing that matters at this organization. You know, she didn't even tell anybody that that's what she did, right? She wasn't looking for any recognition for going above and beyond. The only reason we even knew is because the customer had shared the story on Facebook and we found it and we we said to Andy, the customer experience agent, that's so incredible that you would do something like that. And she was like, oh yeah, of course, right? It was just a no brainer. It wasn't because she wanted anything out of it. It just was the right thing to do. Thanks to Ellen Sweeney of MeUndies for speaking with me. Make sure you go check them out and maybe even get a pair for yourself. Uh, This is not a sponsor plug. I'm just a fan and a customer. So all of this sounds great, right? We know that empathy is good for you. It's something that we should all want in our offices. And in the long run, it will really help us build companies that are profitable, sustainable, and helps us improve our relationships at work. But if you're a leader or a manager, how do you do your part 
in helping to make this happen. Let's return to Sabrosa's Michael Ventura and get his thoughts. Something that every manager has to do, potentially monthly, quarterly, yearly, based on the current structure, is measure an individual's performance. Mm-hmm. So what questions should a manager ask during an individual's performance development process uh, in order to really understand whether that uh, individual has a, a high or low level of empathy? The manager or the, or the person they're managing? Uh, the person they're managing. The person they're yeah. managing. Uh, I think it would be good to understand what they perceive their ability to empathize is relative to what the feedback is from a peer review, let's say. That's one way we've often done it is, you know, when you're looking at a peer review of folks, um, because I think 360s are really the only way to get at that. If you're only looking at top down and bottom up, you're only getting one vector. And so uh, that's that's one way of thinking about it and seeing how they view themselves with respect to their ability to apply empathy and then what their peers would say about that. And of course, what their manager would say too, or any direct reports. Um, another thing that we found really interesting though, is if you give a manager the the same question for themselves and say how am i doing as a manager for you right mm-hmm. and 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 they would probably have one answer and and obviously the person for whom you're asking the question will have a, a different perspective perhaps on that um but the gap between the two is often the piece of work that needs doing like there's been this trend of late that people have been writing these uh self-user manuals. It's like, if you want to manage me, here's my user manual. Like I don't do well in the morning. I need some alone time. Then by, you know, 11 o'clock I'll be up and running. And like, of course, every organization is not going to adhere to that perfectly, but I've found them to be this novel, um, very millennial way of presenting the information to a manager prophylactically and saying, this is how you can use me best in this role. Um, it may not be a hundred percent possible, but let's start from where my perspective is and where I can add the most value. And then let's figure out a way to work together to get there. I want to focus a little bit on sort of teams and the relationship between manager and team specifically. So Mm -hmm. can you give me uh, some examples of questions that an empathetic manager should be asking during their one-on-one with an employee? Mm -hmm. I think the first place to start is often a a check-in. So where are you at right now? And what is this the right time to be having this conversation? Are you in the right headspace? Like even before you get into the the nuts and bolts of the role, like making sure this is the moment, right? And and I think that often we overlook that because we are all running on tight schedules and it's like, you know, I've got this review for the next 30 minutes and we've got to make it great. So like, let's sit down and dive right in. Uh, But are we actually doing that check-in? It takes 60 seconds. And it sometimes makes the world of difference for people. So starting there, then asking the questions about their own uh, perception. Right? How do you feel you're doing? Where do you think you can use help? Because starting there will allow them to, to soften a little bit, to kind of open up the, the, the self-reflection that is needed in order to sometimes give feedback that maybe they don't want versus if they sat down and said, I've got three things I need to tell you. One, you're not delivering fast enough. Two, you know, like all of a sudden guards go up, shields go up, and that conversation is going to be very different. So training that ability to have, uh, going back to doctors, a good bedside manner and the ability to actually um, create the circumstances where self-reflection, growth, and, and, and feedback giving can be taken are, are really critical to, to set it, to, to making sure that managers and teams are, uh, are meeting halfway. That's why I love the questions like, tell me more about that or help me understand. Yes. And you allow them to actually, rather than you say, here's exactly what I'm hearing. 
and like firing, you know, mm-hmm. some poorly yeah. timed feedback is, is actually let's unpack this a bit, but like I want you to unpack it. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the empathy can really obviously um, be what so much more powerful. Yeah. I even, I said to a colleague the other day who was struggling with figuring out a way to deliver uh, uh, some feedback to one of her direct reports. And I said, well, just start with how that information that landed on your desk made you feel. And just don't even worry about them and just say, you know what, this is what I heard. And this is how that made me feel. How do you feel about this? And that shift in the dialogue actually created the space where the the person hearing this feedback was able to see it from a perspective other than their own quickly. Are there some real visible signs that a team inside an organization has strong empathy? I think one of the first ones is you'll see a collegial nature. It doesn't necessarily mean niceness, right? Going back to that idea of like the empathy doesn't always have to equal nice, but you'll see, I sometimes refer to it as a sports analogy. So uh, forgive me, but like it's the no look pass ability, right? It's like that, like you have a sense of each other and you know, even if you didn't see them with your eyes, you know where to throw the ball because you know they're there, right? And so metaphorically that, that, can play out in a lot of different ways on teams. It can show itself in the way of speed. It can show itself in the way of performance. It could show itself in the way of just like the banter and like the, the, you know, the, the, the pre-meeting chatter that happens when everyone's getting their seat in the conference room. And you can get a sense of like, oh, these people really like working together. They understand each other. They know their quirks. They know their nuances. And to me, that's when it gets exciting, when we said at the beginning of this interview, like, it's nice to be back home. It's nice to be in this office and seeing the team. So one of the other things that you can start to see with teams when they're, when they're working in that way is the, uh, the, 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 the sweetness or the, the kindness or the intuition they have for how to work with someone on, in a way that gets the best out of them. And I think that's what great coaches do. That's what great leaders do. It's not about one size fits all management or one size fits all collaboration. The way someone works with me might be different than the way someone works with someone else, but the deftness to pivot your work style, depending on the person you're working with really is, is a true act of empathy. How is decision-making different in a team that is showing high empathy? I think it's a lot more transparent. I think that you know why decisions are made. You have a better visibility into the input and the criteria through which a decision is going to come to bear. I think that the, um, over time, the, the, the speed in which decisions get made increases too, because you have that rhythm, you have that muscle memory together and you have that trust, which I think is a critical and fundamental component of this as well. So say that you work at a company that does not really have empathy built into its values or structure. Can you still actually build a team that fosters it? Yes, I think. Well, yes, you can, but it is harder, I think is probably the better way of saying that. Often we get asked to come in, particularly in large multinationals, you're not always going to have it come from the top down from the CEO that says, we want to make this a more empathic culture. What you might get is the design team or the marketing team or the comms team or the HR team who says, hey, we need to start to bring this into our org. Can you help us pilot it? Can we get a win on the board? Can we start small and grow? And so a lot of our work often begins with a team or a division or a region. And once we see the momentum and the effect of practicing this, then it starts to create that groundswell. You start seeing a certain manager who's running this team and then people start saying, I wouldn't mind being on that project on that team. Exactly. And then there's a lot of this inbound interest. 
In the same way, I think like technology gets deployed sometimes in companies. You have to find a pocket first. Mm-hmm. Someone is willing to take a chance and innovate. And I think building an empathetic team and having a great leader, you'll soon find people wanting to start um, this little sort of heat map starts happening and you're like, something's happening over here. Exactly. And and it, do, it does become infectious in a, in a positive way in that you start to see not only do those teams start to perform at a higher level uh, and attract talent from throughout the organization, but they also uh, retain talent more meaningfully as well. And you start to see how it becomes this this space people want to spend time in. And then that that kind of excitement, once you've got that that ember burning, you just have to keep fanning it and the, and the whole place will go ablaze. In a beautiful way. <laughs> yes, exactly. In an, in an empathic way. <laughs> what tension points should you expect to arise between your team and the larger company culture? Um, and then how, like, how can a manager actually navigate that contrast when there is that sort of divide between we've now got this little ember burning, mm-hmm. yet if you were saying that you've got a really empathetic team and then the company is like, hang on, that's happening there? Like what, what are those tension points and how do you actually maybe fan that in a way that actually does allow it to grow and it doesn't just become this one little pocket? Yeah. There's an archetype in companies that I refer to sometimes as the tooth sucker in the room. And this is the person who crosses their arms, leans back in the chair and goes... And, you know, they're, they're calling BS on this idea, right? Because they hear empathy and they hear it as a soft term and a soft skill and they discount its value and so one of the ways to fan that ember is to start to look at the results and the data and what we see when we start practicing this work you'll see the emergence of high functioning teams within a few months you'll start to see that these teams have higher out and more effective output that they collaborate better together that the recruitment and retention of talent is starts to improve you start to see the um, the connection and the and the efficacy of of marketing to certain audiences in the world uh, become more effective because ultimately we're listening and we're understanding those audiences and their needs and we're meeting them halfway and so all of that is measurable if you try to measure empathy itself it's much harder. I mean, we're not going to put brain sensors on people and watch them walk around the office. I mean, some people do, but like, that's not the point of this, right? And so what we have to do is have the the will and the patience to wait for the effect of this to be visible and measurable, and then point to that as a proof point as to why we need to invest in it further. That wraps up our look at empathy and specifically applied empathy in the workplace. Just to be clear, When we say applied empathy, we're saying that empathy on its own is passive, inert. It doesn't actually do anything. It's only in the application of empathy where we start to see real change. So my challenge for you is to think about an interaction you've had at work recently where you felt empathetic but didn't change your behavior. The challenge is to be conscious of this and take action on it next time. Let me know how you go, and if you find that there's any barriers that are blocking you, I'd love to learn and help unpack this with you. Another thing you could do is maybe read some of Michael Ventura's book, Applied Empathy. Well, great news, we've got you covered. You can head to culturefirstpodcast.com empathy right now and download an excerpt for free. Let's get started on changing organizations' cultures for the better. That's our show for today. A huge thank you to Michael Ventura of Sabrosa, Ellen Sweeney of Meundies, 
and Stacey Nordwall from our beloved Culture Amp. If you like this episode or our previous ones on soft skills, now would be an excellent time to send this to someone in your life or to another company that you think might be inspired by what our brilliant guest had to say. There's actually a share button in every podcast app. So right now you can just click it and send it to your manager or a colleague. It's okay. I'll wait. You're the best. Thank you so much for your support of Culture First, a podcast produced by Culture Amp, the people and culture platform. If you're looking to improve your organization's culture, Culture Amp is the platform for helping you do that. Fun fact, when I joined Culture Amp, we were working with a little over 100 culture-first companies. Did you know that we now work with the likes of Adobe to Airbnb, Kindbars to McDonald's, Oracle to the Oaktree Foundation, and Wikimedia to Ticketmaster? But wait, there's more. We also work with sporting associations, sports teams, hospitals, law firms, and thousands of other organizations. You can learn why they love working with us at cultureamp.com. All right. Well, make sure you're subscribed so you'll hear our next episode on compassion fatigue. It's another great one. We'll see you soon.